What if, with the right mindset, anything is possible? Join us now and find out how. It's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka is here to inspire you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the Million Dollar Mindset. Today, Marla is here to inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power with the Million Dollar Mindset. Today, she'll share heartwarming stories, teach you tips and tricks to building a successful business, plus how to unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's the Million Dollar Mindset. And now, here's your host, Marla Tabaka. And thanks so much for joining me on the Million Dollar Mindset. We are here live on TogiNet every Monday from 2 to 3 Eastern Time. And uh, I just love that knowing that you're here live with me. But if you're listening to the replay podcast on TogiNet, then thanks for being with me there too, or iTunes or wherever you are. I just want you to know that this show is about and for you. So if you ever have any requests or comments or thoughts that you'd like to send to me, Please do that at Marla at MarlaTabaka.com or you can just go to my website and uh, leave a comment for me. Today we have a truly inspirational story to share and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this because... I just met our guest last week, and so I've not had the privilege of reading her book, her memoirs, and so this is going to be all new and wonderful information for me as well, and as we get into the show, you'll find out why. Today, we have with us Catherine Onyamalukwe, and uh, she, Catherine, years ago, joined the newly formed Peace Corps to teach in Nigeria for nearly two years, for, for just two years. And she ended up staying for more than two decades. And boy, what a tumultuous ride. <laughs> Catherine, thank you for joining us on the Million Dollar Mindset. How are you doing today? Thank you, Marla. I'm just fine. It's a pleasure to join you. Oh, thank you. So, And I have to congratulate you on saying my name so well, that you oh. did that really well. Yay! <laughs> that long oh, last I'm name. <laughs> so excited about that. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. I practiced. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is a, a fun name. It really is. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming you picked that name up in Nigeria. And uh, that story is tell, told in your memoirs, which is Nigeria Revisited. My life and loves, plural, <laughs> tantalizing abroad. So, I want to hear. Yes. I want to hear about that remarkable journey, Catherine, and and um, tell us tell us what took you. I mean, you have to be of a particular mindset, character, and personality, and a particular set of values to even be interested in joining the Peace Corps and going to Nigeria to teach. Let's start there. What drew you to, of all places, Nigeria? Well, when I joined the Peace Corps, Mother, which was only it was only the second year that Peace Corps existed, mm-hmm. and we weren't actually allowed to choose the country we wanted. And even if we had been, I had barely heard of Nigeria, if I had at all heard of it. So right. I chose the continent of Africa, and then I was given the assignment of Nigeria. And I think what happened, for me, I know, it's partly that my father had come from Germany to the U.S., met my mother here and married. So the idea of going to a different continent wasn't strange to me. 
it didn't, it, it, it meant, that seemed like something people just do. So that wasn't a fear. And then secondly, it was, as I said, the early days of Peace Corps and many African countries were gaining their independence. And I really thought maybe I had something I could do to help. I mm-hmm. wasn't sure, but I hoped so. And Peace Corps thought I did. So the assignment I was given, which was just fascinating, was to teach the German language to students who had excelled in science and math in their high schools, and they were on their way to universities. The school system in Nigeria at that time was you finish high school and then you do two years and then go to a three-year university program. So these students were on their way to the three-year program to study science or math, The school was called the Federal Emergency Science School, with the emergency being that there weren't enough scientists and mathematicians in Nigeria to replace all the British colonial officers who were leaving. Mm -hmm. So that was my assignment. How how fun and and how wonderful that you knew the language fluently enough to to actually teach it to the students there. Mm -hmm. Right, right. At that time, I don't know if any of your listeners are old enough to remember but there was a thought then that if you were going to study science or mathematics, you had to be able to read German because a lot of things weren't translated and so much science was done in Germany. Oh, Nowadays, okay. so much is in English that people don't have to do that anymore. But, that but was, then it was a big deal. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Why German? But of course, that mm-hmm. makes absolute right, sense. Right, right. Fabulous. So would you say that your stint as a teacher there was successful? Yes, I would say it was. I had a little difficulty because I didn't realize that it was really reading German that students wanted, and I probably should have figured that out, but I hadn't. Mm -hmm. So I was already to teach conversational German, which I thought would be more fun, more interesting. And I had to modify what I was doing because the students, although quite a few were interested in the conversational German, it wasn't their main goal. Their main goal was to be able to read it so that when they got to university, they, they could manage to translate German texts. Sure. So that was, it was challenging, but I did it. There was a German institute called the Goethe Institute in Nigeria, in Lagos at the time, and they helped me with some textbooks. The school hadn't bought textbooks yet for German, so I got them from them. And then the fascinating part was I got a second assignment. The German, the school wasn't very big, and not every student took German, and certainly not every day. So I had, was given a second assignment to go to a smaller school outside the capital in a village where I taught English and Nigerian history, which was very, very <laughs> challenging. Luckily, during our Peace Corps training, we had two months of extensive and deep training before going to Nigeria. We had learned a lot of Nigerian and African history. So I drew on what I had learned and then found some books that helped me get even more detail so that I could teach these. These were young students. These were beginning secondary school, beginning high school, mm-hmm. almost middle school age. So I was able to teach them Nigerian history and learn more about it myself at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, there was the benefit. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so you went there to teach, and, and how long was it that uh, before your uh, future husband contrived mm-hmm. to meet you, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and thus the result being a somewhat controversial wedding? Mm-hmm. Well, I met him during my second year. I had already, I was 
let's see, I got there in September, so it was the second November I was there when we met. And shall I just give you a little bit of the story of how I we would, met? I would love that. Thank you. That's been fascinating. All right. <laughs> All right. Here's what I knew at the time. I was at, um, a, a person came. No, no. Here's how it started. I got a note at my apartment, my flat, as we call it in the British and Nigerian English, saying that I needed to report to the Electricity Corporation of Nigeria, to the chief engineer, electrical engineer, because they were trying to do a survey, and I had never been home when the people came to do the survey of my electricity usage. So I marched off to this office, kind of annoyed, and when I met the chief electrical engineer, he was this very dignified Nigerian, full three-piece suit with his pocket handkerchief. Wow. And I said, you know, why are you, why are you harassing me about this? I'm just a Peace Corps volunteer, and I have a radio, which I play. I use the lights in my apartment. They came with the apartment, but I don't, and I use the fan, but I don't do a whole lot else. So why are you bothering me? And I was actually a little bit rude. And he said, don't worry, I'm sorry, we didn't mean to disturb you, we're just doing the survey, my people sent the notice, I didn't even know. And I left. A week later, this same man showed up at my door, but I didn't even recognize him because he was not then in his three-piece suit. So he showed up at my door with a woman I knew, and they said she had wanted to see me, he had offered to drive her to my place. And so I welcomed them, and we had... Um, I served them palm wine, that very typical Nigerian drink. We had a lovely time. And then he invited the two of us to come to a party at his house a few days later. And after that, we started dating. <laughs> so it was sort of another six months before we really said, this is getting very serious. I met his parents. He met my parents. And we decided to marry. Fifteen years later, Marla. Wow. Fifteen years later, he was running his own business, and he was writing his memo to go to his clients to say, we regret to inform you that the price of steel has gone up, so we're, you know we, we need to let you know this. And I said, but isn't there only one company where you're using this product? And he said, well, yeah, but it just looks better if it's an official memo. So I said, wait, wait, that memo I got about electricity usage, how many people got that? Well, he finally confessed. <laughs> I was the only one. He had bothered me at oh, a gas no station. It's no wonder you fell in love. How cute is that? Isn't that wonderful? So he had seen me at a gas station, followed me to figure out where I lived. That wasn't hard to do. And then got his staff to send a memo. And that all started from that. <laughs> oh, that is just adorable. And, and uh, 15 years later, for you to find out that long, you know, know. that much later is something. Yeah. Oh, that's just too cute. And he, and he had to do more work to find this woman who knew me yeah. because I was rude when I got to his office the first time. It didn't work the way he thought. <laughs> and, and yet he did not give up on you, Catherine. He did not give up. So that was, that was kind of encouraging. <laughs> Oh, that's fabulous. Well, we are getting ready to go into a break. And uh, I just want to tell our listeners that uh, we also spoke to you last week on Big Pitch Radio. So if you're interested in hearing that brief interview over there, uh, please head over to BigPitchRadio.com. And again, you'll find me at MarlaTabaka.com. And Catherine, very quickly, would you share your website with us? Yes, it's 
Catherine Onyeme Lukwe. The first name is Catherine with a C. And then the long last name, O-N-Y-E-M-E-L-U-K-W-E.com. Very good. And uh, we are going to be back after this break. Please make sure to join me in social media. I'm at Marla Tabaka in Facebook and, and my page and my per, my personal profile are, again, Marla Tabaka over on Facebook and in LinkedIn. We'll see you right back here in just a minute. Unlocking the secrets in you to create a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marlon Tabaka. And we'll be right back after these. Listen, something is brewing. The beautiful business evolution is coming. The way we do business is about to change for the better forever. This is real business at its very best. On Beautiful Business Radio, you will learn what it means to truly prosper, how to nourish yourself and your business, how to earn what you deserve and make a difference in the world. The tide is rising. The change is here. Discover a new way to live, love, and partner with yourself and your business. On Philippa Rollins presents Beautiful Business Radio where you matter and your business thrives every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in every Monday night during the debut episode of Paranoia Texas at 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern, and you will get a chance to win some very cool prizes from McDonald's, Walmart, Geek World, Red Petal Salon, and so much more. All you have to do is listen for the cue, and when you hear this music, call in. That's every Monday night at 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern, and win those cool prizes. Information about book publishing is power. The power to change your authoring life and the power to change the lives of your readers. So join us for Your Guide to Book Publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. With your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific. You'll hear about statistics, scenarios, and strategies on what to do now. As the book shepherd, Dr. Judith Bryles is in. And each week, she will include publishing professionals that will reveal tips and secrets to the author's journey. If there is a book in you, you want to listen, learn, and yes, call in with your questions each week. For more on Judith and what she can do for you, check out her website, thebookshepherd.com. It's your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. Brought to you by Author You and The Book Shepherd with your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mindset. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it all starts with attitude, and Marla is here to help. It's the Million Dollar Mindset on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Marla Tabaka. 
We're here on The Million Dollar Mindset today with the author of Nigeria Revisited, My Life and Loves Abroad, and that is Catherine Onyemelukwe. And Catherine, so you've you've got us in suspense, and I know that you, you went ahead to mm-hmm. marry this lovely, lovely man, and somehow your wedding became controversial and actually made the pages of Life magazine. Tell me about that one. I think there were three reasons why our wedding became international news. First of all, I think because the Peace Corps was still quite new. Mm-hmm. So what happened to Peace Corps volunteers around the world caught people's attention. And secondly, I think because my husband had grown up in a, in a village. He'd gone to school, but, but he didn't grow up in a privileged setting. And the fact that he had become successful, he went to university in the United Kingdom in England and then did a second degree in economics after he got his engineering degree. So it was kind of a Horatio Alger story of someone who'd made a success. Mm-hmm. And he was now the chief electrical engineer for the whole country's electricity corporation. Wow. So that was a big deal. Yeah. And I think third, because interracial marriage was still pretty new. Mm-hmm. And actually, my parents, well, I had lived in Kentucky. It was where I came from to, when I joined the Peace Corps. Interracial marriage was against the law. Uh-huh. And so I think that was kind of, that was newsworthy, too, that this had happened. This was 1964, the day after Christmas, Boxing Day in the English, oh, like, yeah. in the English system. Yeah. So yeah. I think all those things. And then there were, uh, there was a reporter in Lagos, and we knew, who was with the, either the AP or the UPI, I forget which one of the major news um, syndicates, and he put the news out. He, had, he put an article in the New York Times before the wedding and then after, and then sent information around the world. And so I think, I guess, Life Magazine picked it up from there. And Did Ebony you know and that? Jet. Did you yeah, know that at the time? We were, and we were in newspapers all over the world, so we heard from people we didn't even know. <laughs> Most of yeah. them very happy and congratulating us, and a few of them saying, this is crazy, you can't do this. Yeah. Yeah, and for my parents actually it was um they went they came for the wedding of course and then they went back to Kentucky. So when they got back they did receive some hate calls from people who thought that an interracial marriage was just a disgrace. How could their daughter you know, shame them like this? It was really awful. They had to finally um unlist their phone number. So they stopped getting the calls. How sad. Were they yeah, themselves yeah. accepting? They were, totally. you know, which I thought they would be when I began to see that it was going to be a possibility, and I told them about it, and yes, they were. They were very accepting. My mother's first question, her her main question was, is he a Christian? Mm. And we had grown up in the Presbyterian Church, so that was very important for my mother. So I assured her that he was, and that I hadn't been going to church until I'd met him, but I was now going to the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church in Nigeria with him. So she was very happy about that. Oh, God. I think partly she had studied some Nigerian culture when I joined the Peace Corps. She had taken a night course and learned something about Nigeria. And she knew that that, um, a good number, about half the people in the country are Muslim and that Muslims allow polygamous marriages. So she was worried about Ah. that. Of course. That was the background for her questions. Well, I can tell you that I find the accent very sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Oh, my goodness. So so then your husband and, and you went on to get married, but 
how long later before uh, the coups and the war forced your family to leave the city and, and go to your husband's village? It was about two years, actually. So the first, we were married in 64, the end of 64, then 65. My sister actually came to visit for a couple of months. And then not too long after she left in 66, the first coup happened. Mm-hmm. And um, that was, it was somewhat violent. The head of the government and the second in command were, were murdered. Oh. And it was quite scary in the country right around that time. And then the person who took over seemed to have things under control. So for a few months, we thought things would be all right, but they were not. So by the summer of that year, by June, July, there was another coup, and the person who had been in power, who was Ipo, like my husband, was overthrown, and um, people from another tribe took over. And then that next year, there was actually a massacre of Ibos who were living, had been living in the northern part of the country. Ibo part of the country is the southeast, but um, there was this massacre. So that after another few months, we no longer felt safe in Lagos where we were living, which was the capital city then in the southern part of the country. So my husband's parents were calling us every few days saying, you have to come, you have to leave Lagos, it's not safe, Ebos are getting murdered in their beds, which wasn't happening a lot, but there, was, there had been enough, just enough to, that we were a little concerned, we were worried, and, and my husband's parents were very worried. So we finally, in May of 1967, we had, by then, one child, and I was pregnant with our second child, and we left, okay. just without really telling anybody, we just took off. We hired a um, lorry a bus to truck to pack our things, and we took off to the eastern part of the country and went back to the capital city there. My husband was asked to take over running the electricity corporation for that that part of the country, okay. and after another month, that part declared its independence, just like the civil war in this country, where part of the country seceded and said, we're done, we're out of here. So this was Biafra. Some of your listeners might remember hearing about the Biafran War. It started mm-hmm. in 1967 when Biafra declared its independence, and then a month after that, the Nigerian army moved in and said, no, no, you're not, you're not leaving. We're keeping this country together. So the war lasted actually for almost three years, from 1967 until 1970. So when the war started, we were still in the capital city of what became Biafra, what was then Biafra. We thought we could stay, but the Nigerian army was moving in from the north, and they were also bombing. And after a couple of bombing raids, um, I was concerned enough. By then I had the second child, so we had the two little children so we decided we had to go to my husband's village, which was not sort of on the main front where the army would attack. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. So I was there actually for a year in the village with these two little kids. Luckily, my husband had built a house there so that we had a place to stay. But there were in the village other family members who came. So we were quite a full house after, <laughs> after the war got mm-hmm. going. Um, his parents were there finally, and then uh, one brother, one sister. But um, that's where we were for the duration for, for another year, and then the war did not finish as soon as we thought. We 
by, I would say, 1969, so a year into the war, I was not convinced that Biafra would win. I think my husband still had hopes, but we decided it would be safer if I left. Mm -hmm. So I took the two children and went to stay with my parents first. They had by then retired to Portugal, to the lovely island of Madeira. I stayed with them for several months and then came back to the States and stayed for another few months until the war ended. So that's the story of what happened. In my memoir, I tell some stories of of what life was like in the village. At first, it was fairly easy to find everything we wanted in terms of food, but there was no electricity in the village and no running water. So that was a um, that was a challenge. Wow. There were um, we had with us our uh, cousin who was my nanny. So she and other other young girls from the village would fetch water every day. They would go to the local spring, carry the water back in big pots on their heads, and that's what we used for cooking and bathing and everything. Drinking for drinking water, we boiled the water and filtered it so it was safe. There. For electricity, well, there just wasn't. So we had um, what we called tilly lamps, which are kerosene lanterns, mm-hmm. and used those at night. Um, we had flashlights as long as we could get batteries. But it was a somewhat scary time. I would say actually a very scary time. Yeah. But because you know, because I was committed to my husband as well as to, at first, to the Afra, thinking that it was a just cause and the... Part of that part of the country had the right to secede. You know, it was. It gave me the strength to say, "All right, this is what I want to do." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you you segued right into the topic that I'd like to talk more about when we come back from this break. I'm curious if there, if you had any rituals or or how you maintained this strength. I mean, let's face it, you come from a country where there had not been war on our soil anywhere <laughs> near our life. Right, right. And, and so <laughs> to adapt to not only the culture and the lack of modern amenities, but uh, also to, to war and, and not feeling safe at night while being a mother of mm-hmm. two small children. I know, right, right. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I couldn't even imagine what it must take to to adapt a mindset that would get you through that. So when we come back from this this break coming up, I'd, I'd love to talk more about that to just, just see how you manage that. But meanwhile, Catherine, why don't you tell us where um, people will find you in social media? Oh, sure. I'm on Facebook with my full name, but that same Catherine with a C, Onya Melukwe. And then on Twitter, my handle is just the first four letters of each part of my name. So it's C-A-T-H-O-N-Y-E. Wonderful. And I'm on LinkedIn also with my full name. If you are able to find the website, then you can find the link to these others. And the website, again, is the Catherine with the last name O-N-Y-E-M-E-L-U-K-W-E dot com. Beautiful. And and I've been to Catherine's blog and uh, just very enlightening, fascinating information there. You're such a a wonderful writer, of course. So it's worth the trip, folks. Go ahead and uh, look Catherine up and we'll be back with more in just a minute.
unlocking the secrets in you to create a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marlon Tabaka. And we'll be right back after these. Are you ready to start rocking that woo-hoo that only you do? Because Lisa Stedman is on a mission. She will dare you, challenge you, enlighten you, provoke and empower you to bring out that inner woo-hoo. Lisa is an internationally acclaimed best-selling author. She is a breakup expert, a brand consultant, CEO of Woohoo Inc. and the Woohoo Radio Network. She will show you how to take your boo-hoo and turn it into woo-hoo. Get rebellious and get real. Get your dreams off the back burner. Get inspired and motivated to take action. Start rocking that woohoo that only you do in love, life, and business. She is going to be here for you every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Only here on the Woohoo Radio Network. This is the Tokinet Radio Network, radio with a cutting edge. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing. More joy and less judgment. You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to The Million Dollar Mindset. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it all starts with attitude, and Marla is here to help. It's The Million Dollar Mindset on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Marla Tabaka. And to my wonderful regular listeners, I just want to remind you that uh, you'll find me every week uh, on Monday. I write an article for Inc.com, Inc. Magazine, and uh, usually every Monday a new one posts. But I'll be writing much more often pretty soon. So I hope that you'll visit me over at Inc.com slash author slash Marla hyphen Tabaka, and I always look forward again to hearing from you, to to looking at your comments, and and responding to your comments on my articles. So look forward to that. And with us today is Catherine Onye Malukwe, and she is the author of Nigeria Revisited: My Life and Loves Abroad. And I'm sure it's just a lovely, lovely book. I can tell just by speaking with you, Catherine. And uh, you, you know, going into break, I asked you how you you developed and maintained the mindset to to continue to raise and protect your children and and not just live and survive but maybe perhaps thrive in the conditions that that you found yourself in in Nigeria I think what what did it for me Marla is that um I loved the country. I still do love the country of Nigeria. I love the customs and the culture and the language. So one of the things that I committed to do in the time I was in the village was to learn the language better. I had started learning before we were married. It was part of what 
convinced my husband's parents that I would be a good wife for him. But I learned more because I was interacting with people, and I made a point of interacting with people. I didn't stay huddled in our own little house. and I was out a lot and took my I took children around and just met many, many people. So that sense of activity and being involved in the village life and, and learning from it was, I think, important for me. And secondly, with little kids, you just sort of devote your life to taking care of them. And mm-hmm. it keeps you busy, certainly. And you don't, for me, it wasn't a question of dwelling on what the dangers were, but more dwelling on what we could make of each day and make, you know, how we could enjoy ourselves and learn from it, from what was going on around us, and just feel safe with each other. And I think also third, having my parents-in-law with us in the village it was a little bit stressful at times living with in-laws, but on the other hand, they were so experienced and just they had lived in that village. My mother-in-law was from a nearby town, but my father-in-law, that was his place. So they were very accustomed to living without electricity and without running water and um, living with all the customs of the village. So they guided me in many ways in how to how to live each day. Mm. And then I love going to the market. That was always an exciting thing. The market in, in, in Nigeria, at least among the Igbos, is on a four-day market cycle. So every fourth day would be the big market, and I would go when it was the big market, often with my mother-in-law. We would find what we needed when we could, or you know, as much as we could. Toward the end of the war, it became very difficult to get change, and this was such a challenge. I write about this in my memoir. The Nigeria, the Biafans had created their own currency, so the Nigerian currency was not in use. And just as in many situations in war, there was major inflation and hyperinflation. So it became harder and harder to, to buy things and harder and harder to have the right change to buy things because you needed different, different kinds of notes. So there was a chemist in the town that I went to him one day in frustration and just said, I don't know what to do. I can't buy the things I want even though I have the money because I don't have the change. And he went behind and brought out a whole roll of smaller bills and gave me change. So every time I went to market after that, I would see him and he would help me out. But people were really, really helpful. I think people realized that that I was um, sort of not on my own, but just, you know, isolated from people like myself. I was the only white woman around Mm -hmm. and were very helpful. So that's, Those are the things I think that made it doable for me. Mm -hmm. And how often did you lay in bed at night saying, I'm leaving this place, (laughs) I'm taking my children and going home? (laughs) Well, I didn't actually do that very often until toward the right before I left. We finally, my husband and I decided that it would probably be a good idea. By that time, there were no commercial flights in and out of Biafra because it was a small war warring country, and, and Nigeria was much larger and had the support of Great Britain, which did not want to, its colony, one of its star colonies, to break apart. So there were flights in and out of Biafra, but they were the Biafran Air Force and uh, some flights that were providing aid. So we decided it would be good if I left. Then we had to figure out how that would happen, and we contacted my parents. I mean, I was writing to them as often as I could, though mail was difficult, and they the Biafran government required paying for flights in foreign currency. So my parents paid for my flight out with our children. And then I was then 
by the time that happened, then I was kind of ready. But I was told I had to just wait until there was space on a flight. So I was given the uh, the directive one day that I should show up the next morning at the airport with the kids. Oh. <laughs> That's what I did. And you had so, to leave without yeah, your husband? Like Say again? You had to leave without your husband? I left without my husband, yes, absolutely. No, he was very committed to the cause of Biafra. There was no way he was going to leave. And um, he also would have needed a visa. Even today, yes. Nigerians who travel need visas to enter a lot of different countries. He has since become an American citizen, so now it's easy for him. But at that time, he, the Nigerian passport wouldn't have even been valid since he'd been away from Nigeria for two years. He was now a Biafran, and Biafra was not issuing passports. So he would have, it would have been very difficult for him to leave. But we didn't really consider that. He, he was heading the electricity for Biafra. He was by then in charge of the coal corporation as well. He was head of the civilian side of the airport's board. So he was, he was very busy, and, he, he, yeah, he didn't even think about leaving, and I didn't expect that he would. So I left without him. I went to, first to Portugal, landed there um, with other people. There were about four or five of us who were women married tonight to Biafans who all left on the same flight with our kids. So oh, we ended up in Portugal at a hotel where the Biafran government put us up for a few days. When I went back to that hotel two years later, three years later, they, they said, wait, you were here once before. The Biafran government never paid us for that hotel visit. Oh, no. Of course, by then, there was no more Biafran government. It was all gone. Right. I said, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And they let you yeah. stay again. <laughs> they let me stay again. <laughs> wow. Wow, yeah. wow, wow. What a story. Wow, that just had to be so difficult to leave without your husband in tow and, and not, it, it sounds like not knowing when you'd ever see him again. Exactly. I did not know. I mean, I, by the time I left, which was in September of 69, I was pretty sure the war would, would not end favorably for Biafra. But I think my husband was still somewhat hopeful at that time. The Biafran territory kept shrinking as the Nigerian army came in. So it, it seemed to me it wouldn't be too long. And in fact, Biafra surrendered four months later in January of 1970. And then I was, by then, I had a teaching job in the U.S. So I finished the school year and went back in June. Hmm. Yeah. And so, so you've given it away already. So I'm not giving anything away. Your husband is <laughs> here with you now. He is. He is. Yes. How long did did that take? And and I'm curious how how he adapted to this country in terms of actually living here. Well, I would say it was a challenge for him. When he first came, he thought that he would not get a green card or get a, get citizenship because he felt that would be disloyal to Nigeria, now that Nigeria was back together as a country from 1970 till now. So he didn't want to do that. But we had an interesting experience <laughs> from his side. In 2007, we went to Scotland. No, sorry, we went to Eastern Europe, to Romania, with a small choir from my Unitarian church. I'm part of the choir, and my husband came along, as a couple of other spouses did for the trip. So we were in Romania. He had to get, at that time, visas for all the countries we were entering because he still didn't have his U.S. citizenship. 
whereas Americans don't need visas for most places in the world, but, but Nigerians do and did. So he got visas for the countries we thought we needed them for. When we were leaving Romania and entering Hungary, the guide who was taking us, who were about 20 people on a bus, he just waved some American passports out the window of the bus, and, and when the person at the border said, fine, go, so we went in. When we were leaving Hungary a few days later, he tried the same thing. The, the tour guide just waved a bunch of American passports out the window. Mm-hmm. But the people on that side of the border, we were leaving Hungary to go into Slovakia. They said, wait, no, we have to look at all the passports. You can't just wave them at us. So they pulled all the passports, they looked through them, and of course they found my husband's passport. He had the visa, but his passport had not been stamped when we entered Hungary because we hadn't shown it. They had just waved this bunch of passports, and they said, no, he can't leave because he never entered. (laughs) (laughs) So we were at the border for three or four hours. My German came in very handy. The border guards in Hungary did not speak English. But one of them spoke German, which okay. they had learned way back. And so I could speak German <laughs> to him and explain the whole what had happened. But they insisted we had to go to another border town, get the passport stamped as if we were entering, and then come back, and then we could leave. So after that experience, my husband said, hmm, maybe it would be a good idea to, to get a green card and get American citizenship. It does make life so much easier. It, it so that's what would. he finally decided to do. Wow. And now he's very happy here. He um, is very comfortable in Arta. We live in a town of about 25,000 people. He knows a lot of people here. He's very happy here. And oh, our daughter is in this country. Both sons are in Nigeria, so we do go back. And we go back anyway fairly often. But, yeah, so he's a satisfied American citizen now. Well, you bring up your children, mm-hmm. and we're going into break again in just a few seconds. Gosh, those breaks do get in the way, don't they? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> well, when we come back, I'd love to hear a little bit about the kids and, and how okay. they transitioned and, and what their life was like there and, and here when they came back into this country, because this had to be, this was obviously extremely foreign to them. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious how they took to that. So you're listening to the Million Dollar Mindset Radio on TogiNet, and we'll be right back. Unlocking the secrets in you to create a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marlon Tabaka. And we'll be right back after these. It's words you never heard. If you're like me, you occasionally have a random thought. Okay, if you're like me, you have a lot of random thoughts. Oniro critics, professionals who interpret dreams, say random thoughts not only provide meaningful insight into ourselves, but these spontaneous ideas that pop into our heads have an influence on our judgment. And for some of us, these random thoughts provide a little extra self-entertainment. For example, when the pharmacist asks me my birthday, I always think he's going to get me a present. 
call me a noodle nut and redunculus, but I'm looking forward to a better tomorrow where chickens can cross roads and not have their motives questioned. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and Words You Never Heard has been brought to you by the Bariatric Surgery Center of Dallas. Welcome to Geraldine Tegelove Live, the show that shares with you the secrets of redefining, reinventing, and rebuilding your life. Having pulled herself from the rubble of financial ruin and having gone on to create a highly successful career, Geraldine has become an expert in the art of transformation. She believes that it doesn't matter where you are right now, how overwhelmed you feel, or how impossible the task of turning your life around may seem. You can do it. Stay tuned as metaphysician, international best-selling author and intuitive, Geraldine Tegelov gives you the inner understanding and the outer practical how-to to create your amazing life. Gain a fresh perspective on how to redefine, reinvent, and rebuild your life. Join Geraldine Tegelove live every Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on the TogiNet Radio Network. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mindset. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it all starts with attitude, and Marla is here to help. It's the Million Dollar Mindset on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Marlon Tabaka. Make sure you head on over to Amazon, which is probably the easiest way to get your hands on Catherine's book, Nigeria Revisited My Life and Loves Abroad. And I'm, I'm sure it's just a heartfelt memoir and, and, and beautifully written, just, just talking to you for this brief time, Catherine. And, and uh, I'm, I'm so... I'm wondering about your children. You know, you mm-hmm. re- re-entered your home country, and so you knew what to expect, but your children had probably never experienced anything like this, had they? How did they adjust, and what was their reaction? Well, it's it's been very interesting, different reactions from different kids, but also their reaction when we first went back to Nigeria after the Civil War. And I'll just tell you one quick oh. story. My daughter was then three and our older son five we got off the plane in nigeria this was in june 19 1970 after the war and um, i i thought that i had talked enough about my husband while we were away from him for nearly two years that they would know what to expect but somehow i think i had forgotten to mention that he was black (laughs) and I am white, and most of the people we interacted with in the States were white, my sister, my brother, and other friends. And we had never talked about their own skin color. So we got off the plane. There was my husband waiting, and my daughter said at age three, I don't want a black daddy. So you can imagine how he felt and how I felt. It was like, what? What? I (laughs) didn't prepare her properly. She recovered from that within 24 hours, and she was fine and was Daddy's little darling from then on. But that was quite a, quite a shock. I just thought, yeah. how, you know, how children see things. It's so different. Yeah. But then in terms of their coming to live in the States or coming for an extended period of time, my daughter came to college in the U.S., so she was 17, 18. She went to Mahalia, which was, is my alma mater. She was quite worried when she was coming, although she had been top of her class in Nigeria in a wonderful mixed school, an American, actually an American mission school. She had excelled. 
She'd been accepted at Harvard as well as at Mount Holyoke, but she was still worried. And so when I was driving her to the college, she was saying, but, but I won't know anyone. Well, that's normal. Kids going to college may feel that. But she said, they'll all be smarter than me. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> I think Aww. you'll do fine. And, of course, she did fine. and was Phi Beta Kappa at Mount Holyoke. But she also found, when she got to Mount Holyoke, that she had to, in her first year, to decide whether she was going to be with the black women or the white women. Mm. She didn't expect that. I think she thought, as she had done in her high school, that she could mix easily with everybody. Mm. But it didn't quite work that way, at least then. I think now, so now would be, what, 25 years later, it would be easier. But then it was, it was hard. So she finally decided that she belonged more with the girls who were white because her upbringing from me as a mother had been more like that. Mm-hmm. And the African upbringing was just unfamiliar to the black girls at Mahoyoke because they had grown up in black communities in the U.S. Yes. They're very different. Yes. There is nothing like the U.S. racism in Nigeria. It just everyone is black, you know, except for a few odd people like me. <laughs> and there's no question of this discrimination or privilege because of color. So it was a shock for her when she found that. Both sons had somewhat of the same experience. Our younger son came with me when I came back in 1986 to do my MBA. And he went to a boarding school. He was then in 10th grade. And I think it was probably hardest for him because, one, he was, he was younger, two or three years younger than our daughter when she came to college. He had known this same school in Nigeria where everyone mixed, and there were Nigerians and Americans and British and all sorts of other nationalities. So when he got to the boarding school near Boston in 10th grade, he found that there was one other student from Africa, and then there were the black boys, it was a boys' school, there were the black, no, it was a mix, sorry, but the black boys were there for basketball. Mm. And their upbringing had been completely different from his, of course. Sure. So he really, they didn't even share the same language. And it was very odd. So I think that was hard for him. I think it took him a while, and it took his teachers a while to sort of understand what the differences were between him and other black children who had grown up in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very different. I don't know if you're familiar with Chimamanda Adichie's book, Americana. No, no not it? She's a Nigerian author, and she wrote a very, very interesting book called Americana. It's just America with an H on the end. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the experience of a Nigerian woman coming to the U.S. and what it's like being a non-American black and experiencing racism and how different it is and how long it takes her to sort of figure out what this racism is in this country. So, so it's just, it, and then it was similar for my kids when they came here. Our older son didn't come to stay until he was already, he'd finished university in Nigeria. So they had been back and forth visiting many times. They'd come to the States. They'd seen my parents in Portugal many times. We, we vacationed here. But I think when he came, he was already so um, older and, knew what it would be like more than the the younger ones did. Mm. Things that that most of us wouldn't even uh, think of because we wouldn't we wouldn't even realize that this existed. 
And uh, right. it's, it's yeah. just yeah. so interesting to hear what mm-hmm. young children had to experience. But boy, I'll yeah. tell you, I'll bet you they're very, very strong adults, aren't they? I think they are. I think they are. Our daughter now lives in Philadelphia. She's a GYN oncologist. She okay. has three kids. She married a black American, a wonderful man, and they live in Philadelphia. She works in Princeton, New Jersey for a biotech company. Wow. And both sons live in Nigeria. The older one is in finance and the younger one in entertainment. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. All such different careers. So different. Very different, yeah. Different yeah. personalities. Yeah. yeah. So, Catherine, mm-hmm. you wrote this beautiful book. What What inspired you to want to share this story, and what was the meaning behind writing the book for you? I think because I do like to tell people about Nigeria, I love sharing what the culture is like, what the customs are. So I had been giving talks now and then to different groups, and every time I would do that, people would say, oh, you should write a book. And I think, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> then um, when I was getting into my 60s, I thought, yeah, you know, I should. So I began putting together little vignettes about people in my husband's family, some of the more intriguing people. And I went to a friend who's a writer and just said, I want to write about these family members, and I guess I have to sort of tell why I'm, why I know them and explain who the family is and how I got to interact with them. She said, well, it sounds like what you want to write is a memoir. And I said, mm-hmm. really? She said, that's, that's the genre. That's what it means. And then you reflect on your experiences. Yes, that would be very appropriate. So that's what the idea in my head that that's what I was doing. And then three and a half years ago, I said, all right, if I'm going to be serious, I have to stop working and work and write. So that's what I did. And it took me two and a half years to write the memoir. I went to writing classes, memoir writing classes, which were so, so helpful. I really learned what it takes to make the story interesting for a reader as opposed to just relating my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned about using dialogue and setting scenes and making one chapter flow into the next with little teasers. So all sorts of tricks like that. Mm. And um, then I finished the class. I had, I hired the teacher to be my editor. She did a fabulous job. I hired a copy editor, and I finally went to Peace Corps Writers, which is a virtual organization of people who were in the Peace Corps and have written memoirs. There are oh. over three or four hundred books, not all memoir, but books about Peace Corps experiences, written by former Peace Corps volunteers. So Peace Corps Writers published my book. They sent me off to Create Space, which is a, which right. produces the book. Mm-hmm. So I worked with them and got it done. It was quite a quite a journey. I'll bet it was a journey. I'll bet it was. And and uh, how long has it been on the shelves now? It was published at the end of October in 2014, so not quite okay. a year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm very busy promoting the book. I write my blog, as I told you, and I do that every four days. I decided to follow the Ebo Market Week in terms of my blog. So I blog on the day that's the major market in my husband's village. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. I was trying to decide. Everyone said, if you need to promote your own book, no one's going to do that for you. So Mm -hmm. you need a blog. So I said, all right, fine. I started the blog over a year ago and was trying to figure out the frequency. I knew I needed 
my own personality. I needed to commit to a regular schedule. So I was looking at my calendar, my Google calendar on my computer, and I saw I have that market day marked in every four days. And I said, wow, that would be a wonderful schedule. Yes. You know, once a week didn't seem like enough, and three times a week was too much, but that made it work. Perfect. So that's what Perfect. I do now. <laughs> and, and, and your blog is just chocked full of all sorts of good information and stories and, and such. So um, it may take people a, a while to remember your website. In fact, they'll want to write it down. So why don't you share that with us again <laughs> and where we'll find you in social all right. media? All right. The blog address is just my first name, Catherine, with a C. So it's C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. Then the last name comes right away, O-N-Y-E-M-E-L-U-K-W-E.com. That's the address of the website and the blog. And if you find me on Twitter, you'll see that I sometimes refer to the blog, and that's even easier. That's just the, the at C-A-T-H-O-N-Y-E. That's my Twitter handle. And when I post the blog every four days, it goes to, to my account on Twitter as well as to LinkedIn and Facebook. Of course. So you can find me in all those places. Beautiful story from a very, very brave woman, Catherine. It's, uh, you've, you've just been through such, <laughs> so, so much, and yet you're still so peaceful and loving and uh, just amazing. So thank you for sharing with the audience here on Million Dollar Mindset Radio. We do appreciate you. You are most welcome. It's been a pleasure. Great. And we'll talk again. And everyone listening, I look forward to seeing you back here on Monday. Thank you for being a part of the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka from Toginet. If you've always known there was more out there for you, but you just weren't sure how to get there, 